Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, meet us here through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Show us who you are and heal us of our sins. And Lord, today let your word be preached with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness, that we might become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, friends. For those who do not know me, my name is Hunter Myers. I am your canon for student ministry here at the cathedral. Our passage today begins, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. If I was going to use an old-timey phrase, I would say this is true religion, according to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Now, when I use the word religion, I can only imagine what comes into your mind. Religion gets pitted against relationships. Religion feels dead and austere. In fact, a very formative book from my early walk with Jesus had this subtitle, Non-Religious Thoughts on Christian Spirituality, as if they were things that were opposed to each other. We owe our distaste for the word religion to the dead orthodoxies and arid and unkind people of past centuries just as much as today. But the heart of religion is ancient and relevant for us today. As I understand it, it concerns that part of the human person that longs to say, thy will be done to someone. Thy will be done. That is the heart of religion, or at least the religious impulse. So when you see throngs of people laying down their lives for a team, a business opportunity, an economic opportunity, a movement, a charismatic figure, a spouse, an ideology. This is all religion at work, or at least the religious impulse at work. And none of those things deserve your unconditional yes. Because we long for a thy whose will may be done, the question is not whether or not to be religious, but whose will is worth following. This is Yahweh's will. According to Isaiah, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon shall my salvation be revealed. Isaiah writes to a people who have long attempted to frustrate God's will. God called them out to be a blessing, to be his people, to be a holy nation, even in their brokenness and fallenness. God blessed them to be a blessing. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it's as if the prophet is calling them back to this original calling to say, no, God called you to be holy. God called you to be righteous. The remaining chapters are God speaking to a nation scattered and have faced calamity. They have failed, but he is righteous. He will keep his promises. The prophet's words today marry the realities of God's righteousness and their response to him. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, beginning in the first verse. You can find that on page 616 of your Black Pew Bibles. And starting in verse 1 and 2 as you turn there once more. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. 
For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So already we see these verses tying together some core themes. God's will is for his people to be holy and do righteousness because his righteousness is coming. So it's not do righteousness so that I might show up, but rather, y'all, this is so important. He's saying, you can live differently because I will act decisively. My righteousness will be revealed so you can live differently. That's good news. It's not up to them. God has acted for them and for their behalf. In fact, he invokes this, this image from wisdom literature when he writes, Blessed is the man or blessed is the person who does this. Because it's not about just acting better. It's not about getting your act together necessarily. It's a response to God's grace. It's a response to his initiative, his presence, his will. Because the nation had tried. They'd already tried to do their own thing. And it didn't work. It led to ruin. But God will not let his promise fail. So we have this image as we read this. It's as if God is kind of defining a circle. Saying this is what true religion looks like. This is where it's going to break out among those who keep justice and do righteousness, who hold fast to my promises and keep a Sabbath. However, what looks like God drawing a circle, the prophet is aware of those who are overhearing these words. The audience in verse 1 to 2 seems obvious. It's the people of Israel, ethnic Israel. Those who are the descendants of Abraham's family. Those who are obviously part of God's people. Yet Abraham's family has just been severely chastised. Their covenant connection, their, their relationship to God has never seemed so tenuous. But what about those who feel like they're outside that circle? What about who, those who are not part of the family? They might be looking on and hearing this and thinking, if this is how God treats his covenant family, what hope do I have? Yahweh is drawing a circle of true religion where true life is found. I clearly must be on the outside. Who here has felt like that? Someone's drawn a circle and you're outside of it. And with that audience in mind, hear the prophet's words of comfort in verse 3. Here's what he says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. The prophet here names those people, and he names the concerns of those who are fearful that they're outside of the circle. There are those who are afraid that their hope is fruitless. Here's what God has to say to them. The Lord speaks specifically in verse 4 and following. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's as if the Lord is saying to these people, looking at the circle and thinking, oh, it's so far. He says to them, do not despair. All who hold to his covenant, all who identify themselves with him, who attach themselves to him to keep his justice, all who rest in his will are welcome and they belong. The Lord 
at the very moment seems to be drawing a circle around true religion, scandalously widens the circle of his covenant, of who his love and his presence is for, that all peoples can participate in his relationship with humanity. But the Lord, as always, is not done scandalizing the merely religious. We read this in verses 6 and following. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Our image that we often think of when we think of religion, drawing circles. <laughs> this blows that apart. That image is blown apart. Rather than as if God is drawing a circle, what he's doing is he's stretching his arms outward. Now, I'll be honest, like in our age, in our increasingly pluralistic age, this is an image that actually kind of makes sense to us. For the ancient audience, it would have been harder. It would have been harder for them to think, like God is inviting other people outside of our people group into this relationship that might have scandalized them. But what cuts across the grain for us today in our moment is why he's spreading his arms outward. The Lord is the God who gathers, who reaches out that he might gather in to himself. So this is not the outward movement of like a generic deity that's kind of like the dude, like, you know, everything's cool. You're good, dude. I'm here too. You're fine. No. To a nation of outcasts and to a people who feel like outcasts, the Lord extends his arms in order to gather them closer to himself. His will is for all kinds of people, all peoples to come near to him. All are invited to the fullness of his life, not second best, but to the fullness, to be joyful in his house, to offer sacrificings that will be accepted. Why is it good to follow God's because he is the God who gathers. And his son, Jesus Christ, is the most clear and definitive example of the Father's loving arms extended outward to the world. But perhaps that's why Jesus' words to this Canaanite woman come across so harshly. Have you ever wondered that? Did the gospel reading make you squirm in your seat maybe a little bit? It seems at first that Jesus might be doing something a little overly harsh. Because at first, there's this woman who's calling out. She's not an ethnic Jew. She's a Canaanite woman from a nearby village. And she's crying out, asking for mercy. And Jesus doesn't answer her. In fact, she keeps doing so. And the disciples are like, it says they begged him. Jesus, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Their first response is to be like, oh my goodness, please be quiet. Stop with your crying. And Jesus even says something that doesn't quite seem to match his ministry or what we read in Isaiah 56. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I want to state very clearly here, against those who might hold this position, who interpret this passage as Jesus being xenophobic or cruel, he's not. He's doing something different. He's inviting her to respond in a certain way. 
He is the God of Isaiah 56. This is what he says to her. This is what the woman says to him. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus commends her and says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So how do we know? That Jesus here was not just being cruel and cold. How do we know that Jesus didn't need to just have his bias checked or his, or his prejudices named? Because he is the God of Isaiah 56. That is who he is. And twice in that passage, it speaks of foreigners who have joined themselves to the Lord. All right, we're going to talk about a little insight here, okay? So I need you to put on your, your glasses for just a second. It's a, it's a word insight. Can y'all hang? Can y'all hang? Glasses on? All right, cool. So here's what's happening. The verb there is using this image of being joined to it. And it's common sense is like coming along or accompanying with. But the image here and how it's being used, it's as if these people have said, I choose to identify with Yahweh. I have joined myself with him without the full hope of knowing that they're, they're an ethnic outsider. They're acting by faith. They're looking at this God and seeing how good he is and saying, I want to be with him, even if I might be on the margins, even if I might be outside the circle, I want to be with him. And that same word is used as the name for those who are priests, the Levites. Levertas, Lava, the priests, the name, Levi. It's as if the word is reminding us that what the people are invited into, because they've attached themselves to the Lord, what they get to do, as we see in verse 7, are priestly duties. They're not invited in so that they can just stand on the outside and watch what's happening. They get invited into the full life. They've chosen by faith, and God has brought them in and adopted them, given them full participation in his ways, in his will. For the Lord, the true priests, the true Levites, are not those who are born into a position. They are those who have attached themselves, who identify with the Lord by faith. And you might be thinking, Okay, cool, you're in seminary. That's awesome. What does that have to do? I promise. Okay, here's what's coming next. Before Jesus shows up to this woman, and this woman shows up to him, Jesus had spent an afternoon pushing back on the religious leaders of his day. He accused them of honoring God with their lips, but their mouths, their hearts were far from him. And what's more, he called them blind guides. Burn. He says that they think that it's what goes into someone's mouth that defiles them. But he's like, no, it's what comes out. That's what defiles someone because it comes from the heart. Then comes this woman crying out from her heart, heal me, help me. He allows her to demonstrate her faith. He even gives her a sort of test and that shows that she has already attached herself to Jesus. And she passes it with flying colors. Jesus recognizes that she is a true child of God, a true priest, a true Levite. She is not the one with the right ancestor or the right job, but she has cast herself upon God's mercy, and that's enough. God's outstretched arms were there, and she is ready to be received into him, his embrace, and he does that. He embraces her. So think about what this means. The dogs Jesus was worried about were not Gentiles. They were not ethnic outsiders. 
Jesus knew who they really were. We see this in the second part of Isaiah 56. He has this harsh word for Israel's leaders. He calls them dogs. He says they're silent dogs. They can't bark. They're dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Anybody own that dog as well? <laughs> the dog that doesn't bark, lies down, loves to slumber, and what's more, has a mighty appetite? Because that's what we see here. He's comparing the leaders to those who are, who are just slumbering. Their job is supposed to shepherd the sheep, to point them to life. And what they're doing is getting fat getting drunk, taking advantage of the shepherd's goodness. Isaiah clarifies that the dogs are not foreigners, but the lazy, self-seeking leaders who presume upon God's blessings. The dogs are not those outside of our frame of reference who God gathers in. Rather, they are those who abuse God's gathering work. The merely religious leaders only seek their will, that it might be done, rather than the will of the one who reaches out in order to gather people to himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ stretched out his arms upon that cross. That is one of our prayers says that all might come within the reach of his saving embrace. And as St. John says, that all who receive him, that one, the gathering one with the outstretched arms, might become children of God. Not who are born, not because of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but God. In his graciousness. If you've ever doubted that God's mercy is for you, or that you're too far from receiving his embrace, if you're outside the circle, this text is for you. It's for all of us. Anyone who turns and casts themselves upon that one, the God who gathers, is welcome. He embraces and makes you holy as he is. But Christian, these are hard texts for you. They were certainly a hard word for me. Think about who the dogs really are. Those who presume upon God's obedience, God's, God's graciousness. And so much of me, I'll be honest, y'all, so much of me never wanted to be a pastor. I was supposed to be in the Air Force, and here I am. The Lord's funny. I even was a water meter reader in between just to kind of throw him off, and he still got me. Jesus spoke harshly to shepherds who neglected their sheep who sought their own wills, and that used to terrify me. Stepping into that kind of role, because that level of accountability is scary. And it used to scare me until I read the rest of the New Testament. Because the way the New Testament talks about all of us, our baptism makes us priests after our great high priest. It makes us shepherds after our good shepherd. It invites us into a new identity. That is our joining ourselves to the Lord. And joining him in his work. Some of us have callers as part of that vocation. Distinguish them. But all of us, as St. Peter says, who apparently was a big deal in the early church, all of us are called to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christian, your baptism made you a shepherd. And so this is a hard word. It's a reminder of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to join in God's gathering work, but when all too often we're like the disciples, we're like, oh my gosh, please be quiet. He doesn't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. We know we're presuming when we stop hearing the cries of our neighbors and their needs, their calls to mercy. So how do we do our job? What does it look like? There's a theologian named Karl Barth, and above his desk, 
he had a copy of what's called the Eisenheim altarpiece. It's a crucifixion scene with John the Baptist on one side. And what John the Baptist is doing, it's anachronistic. He was dead by that point. But the spiritual meaning is the same. He's pointing to the cross. Friends, point with me. (laughs) No, seriously, like point with me. This is a picture of what our shepherding looks like. We point. If baptism is our joining with, with the Lord and identifying with Christ and his death and his resurrection, you don't have to be the good shepherd. You just have to point. How do I do righteousness? Point to the righteous one. How do I, what do I know what justice looks like? Look to the justice of God. Look to his and his justice. Where do I go when all the people around me need mercy? Point them to the merciful one. That's what our shepherding looks like. Not being mute to their cries, but by pointing them to the one who knows them, who's called them, and who has an embrace for them. That's why we bless backpacks. (laughs) That's why we bless your vocations. Because we know that there is no space in this world where God the Holy Spirit is not present and working. And his work is to draw us and invite us into that work of pointing to our good shepherd. Every moment, every calling is holy. Every Christian is called to that work. And as a reminder of that, in just a few moments, we're going to come to this table to receive from God of his mercy and his goodness and his very life. And there's this prayer we're going to pray today called the prayer of humble access. And here's how it begins. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is to always have mercy. The woman who the disciples wanted to shut up, is the one whose words invite us into God's table. That's who our God is. That's the kind of gatherer he is. The prayer of humble access is a prayer of true religion because that is the will of the one who calls us, who sustains us, who calls you and sustains you. And his gathering arms are for you too. Amen? Amen.